good afternoon, everyone. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Uh, we're just about ready for takeoff now, so, uh... Shit, everybody move now. Go, go, go. Inside, everybody inside. To the stairs, quickly. Everyone head to the roof. The helicopter's waiting there. Go, go. No, no. No, you're lying. That, that's what demons do. They lie to cause men of God to doubt. I'm not telling any lies now, Father. I can feel it in your soul that you know what I say is true. There's so much blood everywhere. Where be the rest of them? I... I can't tell. What is doing this, Mr. Simon? That couldn't have been done by no man, I swear it. I don't know. From the minds of true crime guys comes Sandu Stories. Our brand new channel devoted to our previously Patreon exclusive content, where we'll be bringing you our own version of true crime what ifs and other audio dramas, one season at a time. Join us wherever you get your podcast on February 7th. Now, let's get strange. I can feel your fear growing and your faith dwindling. It's an intoxicating feeling. February 7th. It's May 31st, 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's a girl getting ready for a prom at the local high school. A boy and his family are about to sit down for dinner. Many families of the Greenwood District prepare for a quiet evening. But at the same time, an unspoken shockwave is making its way across the area known as Black Wall Street. It's a wave of uncertainty, anger, and fear. Hushed conversations by the back door. The streets are clearing. Everyone is racing home. It's the deep breath before plunging into the pool. The quiet before the storm. The calm before the chaos. Shortly, all hell will break loose, and for many of the area's veterans and residents alike, they will be back in a war zone fighting to defend everything that they hold dear. This is the story of the Tulsa Race Massacre. I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. The first firebombing of a U.S. city didn't take place during the Second World War, but two decades earlier, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was the first and only aerial bombing of an American city in history, and it didn't involve a war or a foreign power. Rather, it pitted American against American in a horrific battle along racial lines, all set ablaze by an incident in an elevator. No one is sure what happened in the elevator that day. Whether Dick Rowland assaulted Sarah Page, or if the two were just instruments to be used to fuel a fire that had been on the verge of combustion for some time. What we do know is that what followed was an inexcusable and grossly negligent act by the city and its police department to inflict damages, cause harm, and embed fear into the black community. The verified count of citizens that died during the massacre is around 35, 25 black and 10 whites. But historians today think the actual number sits somewhere closer to 300, 
most of them being African-American. In less than two days, 36 city blocks were burned to the ground and thousands of black-owned businesses and homes were destroyed. The black Tulsan community had every reason to believe that Dick Rowland would be lynched for his alleged crimes and without a fair trial. The Red Summer was not something that just ended after the Chicago riots. Racial tensions were only growing with the prosperity of the black communities. In Tulsa, the Jim Crow era and the Red Summer of 1919 just set the backdrop for our story to unfold. Segregation was garish, with a physical splitting of the town by the railroad tracks. Dick Rowland was just 19 and a resident of Greenwood, the black side of the tracks. But he had landed a shoe shining job on the white side in a business that was patronized by white customers. Dick's boss had made arrangements with a building owner just a few blocks over. The deal was that he and his fellow black employees could use the colored's bathroom, which was located on the fourth floor of the Drexel building. The elevators at the time were manually operated and the Drexel Building elevator was being operated by a 17-year-old white girl named Sarah Page. Now accounts vary from witness to witness, but what is agreed upon is that the two were in the elevator together. Something happened causing Miss Page to scream, and moments later, the two were seen fleeing the elevator. Roland ran out the building and disappeared down the street, and Sarah was comforted by a clerk who was working in the building lobby. The clerk assumed Roland assaulted her, and the police were called. Sarah Page's dress had been torn, and the assumption was that Roland had done it when he grabbed her. However, she never did press charges, and they were later all dropped. Police concluded that he stumbled into her, or perhaps stepped on her foot by accident. Again, sources vary. But at the time, the public saw that a black man had just assaulted, which was used as a euphemism for rape, a young white girl, and that is the story the newspapers inflated. The very next day, the article in Tulsa Tribune announced Roland's arrest and read, Nab Negro for attacking girl in elevator. The article went on to tell of how an arrogant black delivery boy calling himself Diamond Dick attempted to assault an orphaned white girl. It would later come to light that none of the information printed that day was fact, and that much of it had actually been purposefully misprinted. The orphan child was actually Roland himself as he and his two sisters were adopted by a well-known businessman and his wife, the Rollins. Many character witnesses stepped up and tried to defend the boy, saying that they knew that Dick and Sarah knew each other, some even alluding to a romantic relationship, but none of that was ever published or even checked out by reporters. But nonetheless, the damage was done. The misinformation did its job in inciting a mob, even calling for the lynching in the paper the following day though this article was later removed by the staff and city officials. A mob of outraged white folks began to gather outside the courthouse just an hour after the Tulsa Tribune was published on May 31st, calling for the lynching of Roland. Fearing for the man's safety, a group of black World War I vets from Greenwood donned their previously stashed uniforms, took up arms, and headed to the courthouse where Roland was being held. They offered to help the sheriff keep the prisoner safe while he awaited trial. However, the sheriff at the time knew that a large crowd of armed black men standing outside the courthouse would send the wrong message and turned down the offer, sending the group home. The sheriff's concerns, of course, had merit as they already had a large mob outside that was beginning to grow. A second time, the group marched to the courthouse, offering their services, but were again sent home. However, by now, the crowd outside had grown and numbered in the 100s. Again, the details about who took the first shot vary from source to source, but most believe the first shot rang out after a struggle between two men, one white 
and one black. There was an exchanging of shots on the courthouse steps that left two black men dead along with nine to ten white men. Knowing they were outnumbered, the Greenwoods retreated back across the tracks. But this just added fuel to the fire. The white community now had a reason to assemble and take revenge on the mob that had killed some of their own. At the eruption of violence, municipal and county authorities failed to take actions to calm or contain the situation. In fact, they did quite the opposite. Over the next several hours, groups of white Tulsans were deputized and given weapons by the city officials. Many of those deputized were participants in the violence and added to it through overt acts that were themselves illegal, including gunning down unarmed citizens. Those who weren't gunned down were arrested and placed in holding centers. Units of the Oklahoma National Guard participated in the mass arrests. Tensions built through the night and both sides prepared for a battle to come. When dawn broke on June 1st, an estimated 10,000 people had gathered with the white mob and advanced on Greenwood, killing anyone they saw. But the Greenwood residents had been preparing also and fought back. At one point, it seemed that Greenwood would be victorious in driving the mob out. But unfortunately, a group of white radicalists, better known as the KKK, were stationed at a nearby airport with access to surplus World War I planes and offered their assistance to the white mob. Using planes with two seats, the pilots took off with an armed co-pilot in the rear, carrying sticks of TNT, rifles, and even fabric balls soaked with gasoline to drop onto the city. One account retold in a testimony in court told of how two men fleeing with their wives were chased by the planes, with the men inside attempting to drop lead balls down on the fleeing victims. But the couples were able to escape the murderous attempts. As the city was burning, the Tulsa Fire Department responded to calls for help but were unfortunately held back by threats from the white mob. The mob then entered the burning city and stole, damaged, and destroyed all personal property left behind by those fleeing for their lives. It's estimated that over 1,200 buildings were burned. This included homes, businesses, churches, schools, libraries, and even a hospital. Though they were drastically outnumbered, black Tulsans fought valiantly to protect their homes, families, and way of life. Again, no one can be sure of the number of dead. The only record kept about it was by the American Red Cross, who claimed to have to provide for 37 gravediggers after the events. Many believe there are numerous unmarked graves throughout the Tulsa area, and only recently has the city agreed to put efforts towards finding them. No insurance claims were ever paid out to any of the black citizens who applied, and no civil claims were ever awarded in court either. No white citizens were ever charged or jailed for the murders or the destruction of property. None of the planes used were impounded or fined. No pilot was ever arrested or charged or even disciplined. In fact, the Tulsa police would later even hire the same plane company who owned the planes used in the firebombing to do the aerial survey of the damages done in the Greenwood area. Meaning not only did they get away with murdering innocent people and causing millions in damages, but they also got paid to document their own unholy efforts. Scholars would later discover that city officials were found to have attempted to expunge the event from history, removing the newspaper articles and destroying police and militia records. As a result, the events of the Tulsa Race Massacre were rarely ever taught in school, or documented in history books, or even talked about among those who had witnessed the horror. The city of Tulsa itself did not officially acknowledge what happened on that day until 75 years later, in 1996. Though the attempts to cover up and remove evidence of the massacre were rigorous, 
many photographs taken that day had actually been preserved. Not because they were going to be used as historical records, but instead because they were turned into horrific postcards used by radicalists to brag about their efforts on that day. Images showing bodies and buildings burning, black people being beaten or chased, and the entire district covered in black smoke were passed as trophies. They were accompanied by sick captions with writings that bragged, quote, Little Africa on Fire, or Charred Negro, Captured Negroes, or Running the Negroes Out of Tulsa, or just simply Tulsa Race Riot. But now those postcards hold a different purpose, one that helps to provide insight into and even prove the existence of an event that Tulsa officials have tried dearly to erase. We have a shared responsibility as citizens of a united nation to not only preserve our histories, but also to learn from them. We can only do this by acknowledging what actually happened, not by ignoring it. All right, so there it is, the Tulsa Race Massacre, a case that I've been wanting to cover for a while. Um, I originally found out about this, um, uh, when I look, was looking into the coup d'etat mm -hmm. that happened in, South Carolina? uh, no, it was here in North Carolina. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's in Wilmington, right? Wilmington, North yeah, Carolina, okay. I think. Or maybe Winston-Salem. No, it's Wilmington. Wilmington, it's by the beach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, uh, one of the only coup d'etats to happen on American soil and very similar to this, um, the town of Wilmington was starting to grow in prosperity and wealth, and it was majority black populated, majority black owned. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, the government just could not stand. No. Nope. Could not stand by. This one a little bit different. Um, you know, it's sparked by this racial event, mm -hmm. so to speak. Yep. Um, but I'm, but you have to be naive to think that um, surrounding towns, surrounding counties weren't already keeping an eye on this little area. Yeah. Of Tulsa. Well, the presence, the KKK presence in Tulsa, yeah, we know for a fact was growing and had like doubled at mm -hmm. the time, so it it was very clear in their records. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, this has, and like I said in the in the main part of the podcast, you know, it's been basically buried for seventy five years, but it really started to uh, make the headlines again. When HBO came out with a series called Watchmen, if you're mm -hmm. unfamiliar, Watchmen is a Marvel series. Um, but in the cold open, the first scene of Watchmen, the series, um, is basically this Tulsa race massacre. It is a version of it. Um, it opens with a young boy who is sitting inside the Dreamland, Dreamland Theater uh, while his mother plays the movie's accompanying piano music and the mob is attacking outside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you kind of get it. You get to experience it firsthand yeah um in real time and it is a traumatic scene yeah, it is. <laughs> like it's hard to watch yeah in every way shape or form and it's even harder to watch knowing that it really happened mm -hmm. yeah and that it was covered up for so long yeah. um but this is just one of those history lessons a lot like the uh, central park episode yep. that i feel like need to be told these are things that are left out of history books these mm -hmm. weren't even God, we didn't even have a sniff of this when we were in school. No, I know nothing about this. I didn't know nothing about this. Nothing about that. I didn't know nothing about the only... Learned about it through a comic book. Exactly. I didn't know nothing about the coup d'etat that happened here in North Carolina, mm -hmm. in our own state. Yep. So it, it's just, there's no telling 
how much of our history and our nation's history and dark history is being buried mm-hmm. or ha- is still buried. Yeah. But when things like this come to light, um, I feel like they need to be exposed. They need to be exposed yeah. so people can heal, so people can work through them. So they can learn from them. Learn from them. Yes, yes absolutely. Absolutely. So that's mine and Kristen's thoughts uh, on the Tulsa Race Massacre and... We really enjoyed doing this case. Mm-hmm. Really did. I love these, hist- like I said, I love these history lessons. They are sad, horrible parts of our history. But I love I love being able to get this out there yeah. and to spread the awareness around these. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there will be more news, I know, about this coming out soon because uh, the city of Tulsa has, um, I think it's the city, mm-hmm. has um, basically like said yes to... Uh, study in different areas um yeah they're looking for mass graves yes basically in search of the graves yeah, and they're the bodies. searching and see what's crazy is they say that the official count says 35 dead mm-hmm. well okay if there's only 35 dead why did you assign 37 grave diggers right? to go out there like they so each you assign they each going to dig one grave each, and then, then have two extra yeah and you got two in case what for water breaks right? for bathroom breaks like, yeah. what, what's going on here you wouldn't that need that no big sense. of a group of men to bury you know 20 guys no that makes no sense. So we know the number is, is much, much higher. Mm-hmm. And if they if they were swarming on this area of Tulsa with 10,000 people, like, come on. Yeah, right. I mean. If you think 35 is the end number, then you're, you're just, just being naive. Being, yeah. yeah. You're just being thick about it because that's just impossible. Yeah. that's There's just no way, guys. The, the number of lives lost here, we may never know. Yeah. We may never know. That's just, that, I mean, that's our opinion. But like I said, I mean, if you just look at what the Red Cross does tell you, mm-hmm. and that's official that they sent, they supplied 37 grave diggers after the event. Like you say, you got 35 victims. That mm-hmm. just don't, that. Like they didn't even report the amount of victims. Oh yeah, of course you know not. What I'm saying like that, that should tell you right there. <laughs> yeah. Like, and you know, there were victims on both sides as well. Oh yeah. You know, there was... There was all types of casualties. No one, no one wins in these situations. No, no one wins. No. Nope. So, all right. You got anything else you want to add? No. <laughs> That's pretty much it. All right. Well, guys, um, this is this is kind of a uh, a different episode. I know it's already a, a somber episode, um, but moving forward, we will no longer be blessed with the Lorne synopsis. Mm. We will not. Lorne is. Um, He's stepping away from podcasting. We have no hard feelings, Lauren and I. Um, he's still going to be part of True Crime Guys Productions and help out when he can. Um, he just he just doesn't have the time in his life right now to podcast. And I've actually we actually have a clip from Lauren. He's actually recorded uh, you guys a message, so you're not left you know hanging in the breeze. If you've been a True Crime Guys listener for a long time, I know you're going to miss his voice, his personality uh, on the show. But without further ado, let's. Uh, Let's put let's give Lauren his little spotlight here and let him let him tell you in his own words. What's up, creepers? It's Lauren. I have an announcement to make. It's uh doesn't have to be a somber event, let's put it that way. I am stepping away from podcasting for a while and um the show is gonna continue on. Just to clarify real quick, the show he's referring to right here is True Crime Guys Proper, not Stranger Unexplained. Carry on. It's gonna be as great as ever. Michael's going to take over as host. Andy, who many of you know already from Strange Shorts, is going to take over uh, Michael's spot. So you have Michael hosting and Andy as the co-host on the show. And 
things are going to continue on and it's going to be great. Um, I want to make it clear there's no strife between Michael and I. This was my decision. I just can't do it at the moment. Um, in all honesty, I'm not willing to quit my day job and dive fully into podcasting as my profession the way that Michael has. And Michael deserves a better partner that is willing to do so. Um, I've in the last month, nine months been struggling since I changed my work schedule. It's made performing my duties on this podcast much harder. Um, it eats into much of my weekend trying to study the case, get the crime line done and then recording. Um, and I've lately been reflecting on how much I've been missing out on with my family over the weekends, which is all I really, you know, have with them. And, uh, my kids are five and four at the moment and they're not going to be little like this for long. And I want to be present with them when I'm home. I don't want to be under the pressure of having to get my duties done for this podcast so that it's done right. Um, I want to be able to take them out into nature more and get away and not feel bad that I'm letting Michael down. Um, all of this being said, I still will be popping in and recording podcasts with the boys, catching up with you all. I still consider myself a founding member of the True Crime Guys Network and I'm always going to be around in the background. Um, like I said, I'll still jump in and record when I have time. Um, I want to thank all of you for the support you've shown uh, over the years on this show. Hopefully I'll be, be back podcasting at some point. But uh, for now, I ask you guys to keep creeping on every week without me as Michael and Andy continue to put out great content as well as Kristen in the background, doing killing it on the YouTube videos. Um, the show is going to be just as great, if not better, without me. Um, so I can't wait to sit back and be able to just enjoy the show as a listener like all of you. So yeah, that's about it. That's rant is over. Um, once again, thank all of you and you'll be hearing from me. I'll be around. You can still find me on social media and whatnot. And, uh, uh like I said, I'll, I'll jump in on an episode here and there, hopefully adjust the banter here and there, maybe even a synopsis here and there. Um, but for now I need to, I need to get back to family time and, um, doing what's right for me at the moment. So thanks again. Keep creeping guys. And that pretty much concludes the saddest episode I think we've ever done on Strange Unexplained, which is really saying something. We cover some really sad stuff on here. <laughs> no, no, don't mean to bring you guys down. I just thought what better, what better way to announce it than in his slot of Lauren's synopsis. Um, we don't really know what we're going to do here. Maybe Andy will jump in in the future and do Andy's synopsis. Um, you know, you already get, uh, Kristen and my opinion here on the after show. So, uh, we don't know. Maybe, maybe we won't even plug in a synopsis, uh, person here. Maybe we'll just keep rolling like we're doing. Um, but we appreciate you guys supporting everything we do here at True Crime Guys Productions. Uh, the number one way to support the show, and we appreciate it more than you know, is patreon.com slash podcast, sandu podcast, patreon.com slash sandu podcast. For just three bucks a month, you can get access to everything we make here at Sandu. Um, you get access to Strange Shorts every single Monday with Andy and myself. You hear every fourth episode for free on the free platform, but you, we actually do that show every Monday. So if you join Patreon... Um, for just three bucks a month, you get access to that every single Monday, as well as Sandu Stories. Um, if you haven't heard, and you're only on the free platform, you're not a patron member, uh, Sandu Stories just hit the free platforms on February 7th. Um, you're hearing this on, you might be hearing this on February 9th if you're on Patreon, or, you know, later if you're on the free platform. But either way, 
February 7th, the first episode of Sandu Stories, Season 1, Episode 1, came out. And those new episodes will come out bi-weekly every other Tuesday. Okay? And again, that's wherever you listen to podcasts. Please go subscribe, go rate, go leave a review if you are so inclined. And if you are able to, we appreciate that very much. Um, if you have any case suggestions, please hit me up at Sandu Podcast on Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook, wherever. Or you can just email me at sandupodcast at gmail.com. All right? Well, until next time, guys, just keep being strange. Just don't be strangers. All right? We'll see you.